Welcome to the Marshall Pro Podcast, your week in sports cars. This is a listener Q&A episode, Graham Goodwin. Oh, look at us. Look at us. Wow, we've got a big old distortion on your end. I love that. I have about 45 minutes before I need to shut her down, head to the dentist, and uh, have a really not fun infected tooth dealt Ooh. with. So that might be uh, minus a tooth or who knows what, but... Yeah, about half my face is kind of swollen up. So between you being distorted, me being frozen solid, I don't know if we're going to do any great work here this episode, but let's say a very, (laughs) very serious thank you to our friend Daniel Summersgale, who puts together your questions for us. Also to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com for supporting everything we do with this show. Mr. Goodwin... Good Lord, I don't know if there was some sort of gathering of media delegates and PR reps within the greater world of IMSA, but I can tell you that I think they all said, hey, let's pick the same day and push out, or at least let's let's pick a 24-hour window and just trample each other nonstop with... They did it just to annoy us. Driver announcement after driver announcement uh manufacturer changes all kinds of stuff just minutes ago we had confirmation wayne taylor racing with andretti which is they're spelling it it's water andretti water andretti yes uh wtr andretti they will have the sports car stylings of jensen button for the rolex 24 daytona and also a certain tall Swede by the name of Marcus Erickson, former Formula One combatants. Mm-hmm. One of them now just a wonderful all-rounder, presenter, racing anything he can get his hands on. And the other being an Indianapolis 500 winner who just joined the Andretti Global team during the offseason on the IndyCar side. So we have a, quote, guest with one of their Acura ARX 06 hybrid GTP cars for Daytona with good old Jenson Baton. And then we have a new member of the Andretti family in Marcus Erickson joining as well. Um, funny way to spell Alex Albon, but nonetheless, we have <laughs> the full Wayne Taylor racing with Andretti lineup that's been confirmed. We have our friends at Pratt Miller Motorsports showing fully decked out, liveried, and beautiful their new GT3, full GT3 spec Corvette C8s. Mm-hmm. Uh, look like they were unloading at Sebring. Had mm-hmm. their lineup confirmed. I just saw a tweet from Andy Lally that he'll be back with Magnus Racing for the umpteenth year. And run down the list, brother. It seems like half of IMSA has confirmed what they're doing for next year. We even had our friends in the general Andretti hemisphere as well, the specific Andretti hemisphere. That being Jared Andretti, yeah, uh, who raced last season, shifting between LMP3 and GTD with an Aston Martin. Well, they'll be back to GTD racing with a good old Porker with a Porsche, and uh, that 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 ranks as a surprise to me. I mean, the the uh, Indianapolis we saw the car running running pretty well after a engine blow up. I think was it in practical qualifying they lost an engine. Um, and with the new Evo, Aston Martin, that one did rank to me, MP, as a bit of a surprise. 
Same here. And the other surprise of the most positive variety, young Canadian, Scott Hargrove. He was Mm -hmm. on the true road to IndyCar, won a couple of races in Indy Lights, and career was moving upward, stalled. He'd taken to whatever drives he could find. That usually means sports cars, right? If you're on that open wheel ascension and fall off, tends to be sports cars where you land. Good on him. Really dominated Canadian Porsche Cup uh, competition. And so he'll be joining them for some endurance races. So that was another nice little surprise. Uh, We have the Kortoff Preston team announcing that They'll be doing similar things, but they'll have a brand new Mercedes Evo to mm-hmm. play with. I mean, just on and on and on, mate. Uh, I know you and Stephen Kilby and everyone else who covers sporty cars. You've been cursing at your keyboards the last twenty four yeah. hours, having to fire out a bunch of stories. And- we love it. I just have to ask you, ask you to pause because uh, Stephen is here in the Daily Sports Car headquarters with me. I'll just turn to him and type faster, for God's sake. Yes, get to work. Kilby. Yeah. So uh, to be, yeah, there was a uh, avalanche, a tsunami, um, uh, an embarrassment of riches of uh, of PR material and confirmation of a whole range of, you know, familiar and some unfamiliar names for Rolex Twenty Four in particular, but in some cases for the full season. Great, by the way, to see Ollie Jarvis back in full season gainful employment in IMSA WeatherTech guys. This time switching to GTD Pro with the. Faf Motorsports McLaren effort. That was great to see. Alexander Rossi popping in there as well. Another of your, the, the other side of your day job, uh, MP, from the IndyCar side, uh, popping in as their fourth driver. Well, we have another reunion. They did this down under the Bathurst 1000. We mm-hmm. have a, a in-car podcast duo again with uh, the off-track with Hinch and Rossi. Uh, podcast so we do indeed have hinch and rossi together in the good old pfaf pfa motorsports pfa mclaren uh on occasion next season so or at least once but yeah so fun there i mean uh boy rare graham where by mid-november so many pieces at least on the weather tech side the uh weather tech championship side that puzzle not completely solved, but boy, it feels like the the majority of it is coming into focus. It's it's good to see. Uh, good to see it in such rude health. And uh, for me, aside from the marginal irritation of you know all the press notices in the world landing at the same time, great that actually the news agenda in our part of the uh, the racing world is so healthy and so positive at a time when. The season beginning to wind down. We've still got racing to come. I'm uh, away tomorrow morning, first thing, en route to Macau for the FIGT World Cup. And uh, my first ever street race live. Never seen a street race live before in my uh, my life, wow. my career. No, I know. Just, just every time we've had one in around the the orbit of Delhi sports car, it's always been somewhere where has been a clash and I'm doing something else. So we've had street races in Baku, in Bucharest, in Po, indeed British GT visited Po uh, a, a, a while ago. Never did any of them. So my first is going to be Macau. Can't wait. So that's going to be fun. And then of course, after that, and by the way, the next uh, little tsunami of news is going to be 
um, what's going to happen with what is looking like a pretty stellar uh, lineup for the Asia Le Mans series. And I'm off there and I can confirm, by the way, for weekend sportscast listeners that it will again be my good self and washed up husk of a uh, Ollie Gavin. That's him. Ollie oh. Gavin is going to be with me again for that. Pity for the pensioners. I think that's what that uh, <laughs> program is called. Well, hey, we and hopefully, by the way, final iteration of my um, uh, broadcast program for the year. We'll not say a lot about it, but hoping that's going to provide us with some pre-Christmas or Christmas week goodness for the Marshall Proof podcast with some pretty different in-car uh, that I'm going to be trying to gather for you uh, during the final week of uh, action for me before finally Trudy gets to nail me down and take me to a supermarket. Um, and that will be some historic racing goodness. And you had a bit of that this last weekend, did you not? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, I'm hoping to find time to generate more of it. But, yeah, mostly of the vintage Formula One uh variety but yeah just a magical magical event there excellent sonoma the good old velocity invitational uh got to see i don't think i posted it um sauber c9 was there Mm -hmm. um there's a bunch of just really fun and amazing things so had a great time but hey we've got a little over i don't know half hour 40 ish minutes left why don't we fire into questiones uh from our dear listeners and Let's see, why don't we do something rare and fire off beginning with LMP2. Pal Stuart Hart says, there are no guarantees. A new P2 regulation set will be as popular as the current one, Graham. Could we see Mm -hmm. teams lobby to allow hypercar, say, into ELMS with -hmm. potential customer cars and secondhand machines passed down the ladder? He says the ACO needs to find a platform for such cars in addition to the WEC. I'm sure some will argue WEC could become hypercar only, but the ACO are wedded to the multi-class concept and a mix of prototype and GTs. Mm-hmm. Additional restrictions and cost control will be needed to make hypercar viable in ELMS, but I'm sure a business case could be made. So what we know where we're headed Right yep. with WEC with P two being we essentially do. drummed out, except for yep. uh, uh, a return at Le Mans. Should we allow this approach to be applied to the ELMS in years to come? I think that the major issue with it, and thanks to you for the question. It's it's certainly not the world's most ridiculous premise. The major issue with it is budget. It's the cost of these cars. It's the cost of running these cars. And as you and I know from talking to the teams in the IMSA paddock uh, MP, uh, at present, while the world is still settling down, the costs of these things is dramatically over and above what was predicted. So for the time being, it it's sort of a premise that needs to be parked for at least a year or two, I think, before we, we get there. Uh, I'm not aware of anybody yet lobbying the ACO for such a change. And there's a good reason why that's unlikely to be welcomed in the in the early instance, and that's because they've now got to navigate a transition for the new LMP2. So we've got new GT3, new G, uh, GT3s coming in 2024. Uh, in 2025, we've got the revised LMP3 regulations with the new turbo engine going to LMP3. And then we've got a bit of a gap 
uh, before we get the new chassis coming in for the new form of uh, LMP2, which we now know will be powered by the Gibson V8. So that much we do know. So that means in terms of potential engine performance, we're in the same kind of ballpark. The ACO will understand how important LMP2 has been and will remain to develop a ladder towards hypercar and towards the FI World Endurance Championship. Hi, Rocky. Um, and I don't see them messing with that, in particular because Stuart is absolutely right. There are no guarantees a new P2 reg set will be as popular as the current one. And I think anybody sensible MP would understand that it's likely to be less popular for one reason and one reason alone. In fact, well, I could give you a second. The first reason is because there is less opportunity to progress. At the moment, there's no avenue with that car into the FI World Endurance Championship. Your three options, as we as they stand right now, are the European Le Mans Series, the Asian Le Mans Series, and the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championship over a time frame yet to be established. So, yes, you'll be able to race at Le Mans. I don't see that changing anytime soon. But the, if you like, the business case behind LMP2 all of a sudden has got a little bit of a chokehold on it. Not choked to the point of extension or even to unconsciousness, but certainly to the point of discomfort for some of these teams. So the kind of chats that I'm having in the paddocks of the world are around how can we see these four chassis manufacturers, it's the same four as I'm doing the LMDH cars, so Multimatic, Delara, Ligier and Orica, of course, is there going to be a market for four chassis manufacturers in what is a constrained LMP2 marketplace? My view is there probably isn't, uh, so that needs to sort itself out. But I don't see the question of effectively pro-am hypercar coming to the fore for at least a couple of years. We've still got, we, we, there's a known known for next year in that we know which factories are coming. We know there's a further factory in Aston Martin coming for the, the year following that. There are others potentially to be joined, certainly for the WEC side. Honda, we'll wait and see what comes out of the HRC announcement we, we had just a few weeks ago. We'll wait and find out whether McLaren uh, finally get off the fence and come forward with a programme there. We've got the customer marketplace uh, due to uh, find its feet. And the other thing that inevitably will come as this marketplace matures, MP, you've been there for many of these cycles, so have I, is that at some point, one of these factory teams is going to say, nah, you know what, we're going to do something else. And all of that is going to work its way through before we get to the stage or during that period when there's a determination about what adding hypercar, uh, presumably in a pro-am format, will do for the ladder, principally for the European Le Mans series. What it would certainly do is dramatically increase the budget for the European Le Mans series. And I'm simply not hearing, seeing any kind of lobbying from any teams currently on this package for that to happen in the short term. What do we go to Joshua Johnson? says, with hypercar turning out to be so popular in the coming of the new P2 and P3 cars, could we see a return, Graham, to a prototype only Le Mans in, say, 2026? I, I, I don't see that either. I mean, the, the reality there is that that means you lose two things at Le Mans. Um, you lose the problem aspect of it, which the ACO certainly value. 
they understand the value that's got to developing a healthy industry of professional teams. That's the way they draw that income. If there's not, um, you know, overwhelming income from the manufacturers, then there's got to be income coming from somewhere else. That, generally speaking, is going to be about the the relatively well-resourced uh, non-professional drivers that fund those things. The second thing is production relevance. Yes, we've got some of that with the the new uh, top class, but it doesn't replace the direct relevance of the, uh, what I would call in European parlance, and you may not be familiar with this term, I'm not sure whether or not this is a product that made its way to the States, the relative top trumps parade, the trading car parade, if you like, of um, supercars, uh, road-going supercars that, that come out in their racing guise. So I don't see that as being somewhere where they aspire to being ever at this point. Does it mean that if Hypercar continues to expand the LMP2, for instance, and LMGT3 are more vulnerable? Well, of course it does. They're going to have to make some tough decisions. But my view would be, MP, as you see the customer car market grow, as you see this, you know, at the moment, tap on full gush of manufacturers emerging, at some point, somebody is going to be moving in the opposite direction. I think this is going to be a market that sort of manages itself within reason. We know that the uh, WEC have got aspirations to grow the grid in 2025. The uh, 37 cars we now know that will be on the list uh, for 2024 is artificially limited by two of the circuits we're visiting in 2024, that being Imola and Cota. Both of those are expected, as things stand, to be one-off um, appearances in the case of Imola, reappearance in the case of Cota, uh, before Monza reopens after all the spectator areas are refurbished for 2025. And I think most of us sort of expecting there to be some form of attempt to get a mega event together at uh, Indianapolis Um you know, in the uh, in the future as well, and you know, from what I've seen of the spectator experience at Indianapolis, uh, I'd struggle to disagree that that might be a good idea. Let's see, where shall we go next? Uh, got a lot of similar things here. Um, any more in this block? No, I think the, the, the when we get into the LMGT3 and GTD thing, I'm, I'm keen to hear some of, of your views on this. I mean. I know we've got questions here from Jacob Money. Great name, Jacob. First question he's got for me this time is whether or not LMGT3 Pro-Am class or an all-pro class. It will be Pro-Am by regulation. You must have a bronze and a silver driver in in each driver squad. When could we see an entry list for the WC in 2024? My understanding is before the end of this month. So uh, not going to give you any specifics, but before the end of this month, we should see that's... um, well, I was going to kind of throw it to you, MP, from your side of the pond is this is a different approach. WEC with a purely uh, pro-am approach to uh, the GT3 uh, format, whereas IMSA has gone entirely the different direction with GTD Pro, which is coming forward with a really pretty healthy class in 2024, uh, coupled with GTD, where it still is a pro-am class. What say you? That That's a move from IMSA that attracted some criticism and that the cars run to the same balance of performance, um, run with the same tyres. At times we've seen GTD cars finish ahead of GTD Pro cars. What 
do you say, MP, in terms of the business case for that, the reality of that in terms of you as a professional and uh, the guys on the other side of the fence, if you like, as the watching public, as to whether or not that's proven to be a success or not? believe it has. The There are two really unique things that have happened here. One was a surprise, one not so. If you look at the approach that the WC has taken, it said, hi, we're going in a new new path with GT racing, obviously turning off GTE. We're adopting this global GT3 formula as our one and only, and we are getting rid of factory, full factory options for that GT racing, uh, meaning... 100% factory, 100% factory drivers, they're all platinum or greater rated. So we're going to maintain the, uh, the, the sports person's angle in GT racing. And we want to funnel. We want to funnel factory racing to the very top class. So if you want to be here in a 100% fully-fledged factory program, welcome to the hypercar slash LMDH formula. I did not think that was the right direction to go. Thought that that would actually do some harm. I would say that I was completely wrong. We have the, what, majority, if not pretty much every manufacturer that has been represented in GTE racing, and I'm sure I'm forgetting one or two that maybe haven't come along, but between Lamborghini, Aston Martin, Porsche, and so on, um, we have a pretty solid composition of what has made factory type GT racing being fully represented in the top prototype class immediately now or coming here shortly. So never a fan of forcing manufacturers in to whichever direction thought this wouldn't work, but it has IMSA has done something different. They have indeed said, well, we want to provide options. And our manufacturers are telling us that on the GT side, they do indeed want to be able to play as full factory. So we will create using the same car. No differences to it. No arrow, no BOP, no just, right? Same car, same everything. But we'll branch off and give you that opportunity to go factory GT racing. And so indeed, we will have, as you will have, Ford versus Corvette versus versus versus. And I love that. I don't know. This is where I'd love to get thoughts back from you. Has this been to the slight detriment of the GTP class, right? By forcing those who want to play to say, well, then you're going to have to do as a factory only in the top class, like you do in the WC. Ferrari is a prime example, right? Um, Mm -hmm. We don't have Ferrari over here in GTP, but you certainly do have them over there in hypercar. Um, what are your thoughts? I'm more of the let let them play as they want, but yep. that be, the more restrictive approach has not negatively affected your series. No, I think I think my view would be I think it's been a big plus. We've got new cars coming, new manufacturers coming for 2024. It's added areas of headlines for IMSA that you won't have at the same level with the WC. No doubt the hypercar class is deeper than the GTP classes, 
But here's the point. If you've given them a price point to come in at and a business case to come in at, in the case of, for instance, Ford and, for instance, Corvette with their first ever customer GT3 car uh, built by the factory, <clears throat> that can be nothing other, surely, than encouragement to look at that platform and to determine what you want to do in the next phase of investment. Uh, yeah, am I in any way saying that Ford Motor Company are going to come forward in a year's time and say, you know what, let's go GTP, this is amazing? No, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, if you didn't have that company at the point where they were ready to commit at that level, it surely gives, it's surely a, a, a very sensible option to give them an option that is at a price point and with a product that they're significantly more comfortable with. And I think the, pr the proof of the pudding is going to be in the eating in the next year or two um, as GTD Pro matures uh, this coming season. I think you're right. The Ford versus Corvette battle is going to be um, one to watch. They've got manufacturers that's, uh, in GTD Pro, that's you know, including Lexus, that have looks. Uh, they looked at DPI. I'm sure they looked at uh, a GTP. I'm sure they will look again at those. And who knows what that might throw into the mix in a year or two or three years' time. I think it's just smart to, to listen to the manufacturers you've already got in the tent. And, you know, it is that there are, there are some sharp differences between the ways in which the ACO, FIA, LMEM do business with manufacturers in WC and the way that IMSA does uh, business with them in the IMSA Weather Tech Sports Car Championship. And I think it's going to be a really interesting you know, parallel pair of paths to watch over the next two or three years uh, to see what works and what doesn't here. Because you're having to make, aren't you, Marshall, some really, really big calls, and those calls have had to be made at what's been a massively difficult time for everybody in any industry. And if you're dealing with an industry that's dealing in premium products where product development and logistics and technology are a big part of it, that has just added layers of complexity and layers of risk that uh, they certainly wouldn't have been uh, thinking about prior to 2020. No doubt. No, no doubt. Let's see. Where else should we go here? Let's uh, have uh, a quick look here. Uh, Matthew uh, Sturtemont says, uh, by the way, great to see some new names in this list of questions. Thanks, guys. How do you expect the WC to handle entries from 2025 onwards with an oversubscribed field? Red, they want to expand to 40 cars, which is great. That doesn't seem like it would allow much expansion of hypercar customer teams. If LMGT3 stays at 18 cars in the class, may not uh, allow all manufacturers that want to fill a second car in the future to do so. I think we can put two and two together and make several more than two. Um, four rather two and two is not too great um but at the moment the attitude the prevailing attitude is all the problems we've got are nice problems to have we are getting to the point where some of those problems might be less nice and there might have to be tough decisions to be made and the first iteration of that is of course going to be this coming season for 2024 where at least one Hypercar is going to be turned away uh, by the look of things. And at least two and possibly three manufacturers that wanted to come to LMGT3 might also be turned away. Uh, they are nice problems to have for a race organization, 
they are pretty difficult if your business case and your livelihood depends on those. Um, it's why, for instance, this uh, clarification we received in Bahrain that those LMGT3 factories or manufacturers that don't make it to the boat, if you like, will not be able to enter Le Mans is such a big blow. So these are big calls being made, and we're dealing with really big names in the industry here. I mean, the three that, you know, the two that definitely appear to be on the, um, the chopping board, if you like, are Audi and Mercedes-AMG. Huge names in automotive and huge names in motorsport. The third is Honda, which I believe probably but by this stage do not have a viable plan to bring to the FIWC. But either way, uh, just to hear that that, as a prospective hypercar entrant, remember, um, were not initially looking like they were going to make the cuts. Uh, these are big calls. Uh, so for me, I'd like to understand 5% more of the reckoning, of the ideas behind the ideas here. Um, I think that's something I'd value being communicated to me, even if it's done in a way that I can understand it rather than report it, because that's a key to it, is what we're seeing at the moment, MP, is a lot of people seeing these decisions being made and choosing to take a negative view of those decisions. You know, that's unfair, that's this... <laughs> These aren't nice decisions to have to make because it's it means that you're oversubscribed, but I don't think they're taken lightly. I think what we're looking at here is a group of people who are interested in pushing this sport forward are having to make calls sometimes in terms of the short-term gain for these programs, but in other cases, taking into, in, into account some longer-term factors that, you know what, some of them might come back and bite them. Um those things are yet to be seen. For the moment, packed grids in the NWC, packed grids in the Interweather Tech Sports Car Championship, packed grids in Europe, packed grids this coming uh, next month in uh, in Asia as well. And it's the same across the SRO planet of GT racing. Again, record grids and packed grids everywhere. I'm sort of sitting here stealing myself when the bubble bursts um, rather than worrying too much about who will be turned away. But I do want to hear from IMSA, from the ACO, FIA, LMEM uh, combine, what is their medium-term plan to handle this ballooning overspill? Because turning people away from wanting to do international sports car racing and offering them no product that they can race a car that yeah. is specifically designed for that does strike me as being something they don't want to be doing more than once. I scrolled to the red line of death and I'm going to go backwards. <laughs> I'm going to go up from there for our next question. That's Eric Harkrader. Does Graham Rahal just okay. signed a multi-year deal with Rahal Letterman landing and racing to continue an IndyCar says with Yuri Vips waiting in the wings there as well. What is your take on Graham or Yuri participating in the BMW GTP program this year and future years? Also, hi to the cats and all the best to my wife and I. Thank you, Eric. Well, when we were at Petit Le Mans, Bobby Rahal mm -hmm. was searching for P2 opportunities for Yuri. Um, okay. Saw Yuri there. 
Bobby told me that while standing in front of Yuri and myself, so it wasn't a secret by any means. So I would take mm-hmm. that, Eric, as meaning that there are no BMW opportunities uh, for Yuri. Not that he isn't crazy fast and wouldn't make the most of it, but as I understand the dynamic there, it's not a case of RLL choosing drivers. It's BMW, the factory choosing drivers. So there's that. And then on the Graham side, you've seen the cockpits of the GTP cars, but they are narrow. They are not something made for Graham, who's about six foot three, maybe six foot four among the taller drivers you will find anywhere. And also, he's not particularly narrow. Um, has a somewhat larger frame on him. I just don't think he would fit. So I think that's answered pretty easily there, Eric. Uh, our pal Clement Rosin says, Graham, when can we expect an announcement on a McLaren hypercar? I think we've had plenty of announcements on McLaren hypercars, and I expect a position the next the coming couple of years where we'll see plenty more announcements on the McLaren hypercar. Whether or not we'll see a definitive announcement on the McLaren hypercar is quite another question, but I think the answer is, did, did you get a chance to catch up with uh, uh, Mr. Z. Brown? I did, and sadly, of course, the one question we got is the one I didn't ask him. Uh, I feel like such an idiot. So I, but. Think, I think the answer here is um, McLaren have not made the cut in LMGT3 by accident. Okay, I think there are two reasons why McLaren are going to make the cut in LMGT3, and they're going to make the cut. The first is that um, LMGM do want to retain United Autosports within their corral. That's no doubt whatsoever. That's a big, big part of it. But the other part of it is quite how the commitment has been made, quite where and when the commitment has been made, quite how solid the commitment that's been made to, yeah, we're definitely coming to do a hypercar. I have zero doubt that commitment has been made and made perhaps unofficially, but I think the their inclusion signals a statement of intent being made in a credible manner to those that matter. That's all I can say at the moment, at the moment Clement. Um, I share your frustration that we, we're not able to put a time frame on it. Uh, I'll tell you right now, it certainly won't be before 2025, and I suspect it might be a year later. Joe Nowatney says, which board of directors is happier to have spent the money in 2023 WEC? Would it be Toyota winning six of seven races and dominating the championship? Or Ferrari winning Le Mans, the one that really matters, on the first try back. Who's happier? Who said, yep, we made the better uh, investment? Well, I can tell you, of the two boards, that they basically the one that's happier at the moment is Ferrari. Uh, and why do I say that? I say that for a really encouraging reason. If you want to look at the real-world um, encapsulation of how happy they are, it came a couple of weekends ago in the shape of the Ferrari 499P Modificata. Um, I clarified with a good source at Ferrari just exactly what that, that, that program means. This is the track-only, will-never-race, unrestricted version of the hypercar um, that sitting alongside their F1 Cliente program, which means that if you have enough money and you've got the right contacts, they will sell you uh, an X-Factory um, Ferrari Formula 1 car and will help you to run that. 
and we'll help you to hand them the money uh, to do that at a range of spectacularly exclusive uh, days for their most valued clients. The fact that they've done that, that they're building this car, the first ever time they've built a track car uh, for their clients from a new um, race-only Ferrari prototype, um, says something about the marketability of this program with their most valued clients, the ones who are going to spend the really, really big bucks. That, I think, MP, is a really significant moment, that they're regarding that as alongside, and one very good source at Ferrari said, if you want to look at it this way, it sits a little above the F1 Cliente in their offerings. It's so exclusive. They're not naming numbers, but it's going to be a tiny number of these cars that we expect to uh, to be built. Um, that, I think, marks uh, shows that they are very impressed indeed with the response from their customer base to that success. Toyota, we know, were not happy about uh, the cars they were dealt at Le Mans. I am of the opinion and of the view that they probably would just do well to go away, lick their wounds, come back and try to kick ass again in 2024 um, because this gap is going to come down. Make no mistake about it. Where are we at the moment with um, with hypercar and balance of performance and all those things? At the moment, Toyota are utterly dominant and they're dominant principally because they've got a mature package three years in now. Uh, they will have come into this expecting to win every race and at Le Mans, they didn't. Uh, they've chosen to to put their ire, their annoyance behind a decision outside of the established process with balanced performance. The reality is that one of those two cars was uh, eliminated in an accident and the other car did not have a clean run. And Toyota, more than anybody else in sports car racing, knows from decades of trying before they finally got there, to win the race, it's not about beating Ferrari. It's not about beating Porsche or Peugeot or Glickenhaus or Cadillac. It's about beating the race. And this year, Toyota didn't beat the race. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Where else shall we go? Uh, James, oh, James Counter. Yeah. It, it, James asks, is, is there pro-drive involvement, didn't he? Um uh, with the Aston Martin Hypercar program? The answer, as far as I'm aware, is no. Uh, ProDrive and the Aston Martin Racing aspect of it have a license, an arrangement, a contract with uh, Aston Martin Lagonda uh, to design, develop, build, operate, sell and service GT race cars. I think it's front-engine GT race cars on behalf of that brand. This is not one of those. This is going to be uh, Aston Martin, uh, the technical side of that, I'm sure with some Multimatic involvement because they've been a big part of the design, build, development of the both the, um, uh, the road-going Valkyrie and the AMR Pro version of the car. Uh, all the Aston Martin Valkyries, by the way, are built by uh, Multimatic. Um, so... The answer is, I don't believe, and if I'm wrong, uh, David Richards will be on the phone and there'll be a black transit van and a helicopter flying overhead that I need to be worried about. Mm. But I'm pretty certain no program involvement in it. But it will be very much a factory development program. 
Let's see. Why don't we go to our pal Ed Joris says, how about a over under odds question for you? How many WEC races do LMDH cars win in 2024? More or less than one and a half. He says death is not an option. Uh, I, I hope what we're going to see is, I think if there's one area where we need to understand more what the issue is, it is that what's termed the platform BOP and what has looked like a disparity. It's not a massive disparity in terms of performance. It seems to be a disparity in terms of the way the cars can use the tyre. And I think that's where I'd be a lot more comfortable if I understood it better. And that, by the way, is a message I've delivered politely to the the powers that be to say, here's where you can help us if you're concerned that too many people are bleating about balanced performance. Help us to understand it more. Help us do that thing that truly clever people can do, which is to explain the complex in a simple fashion. Help us to unpick the problem. And I think that was listened to and understood. I think they see the value in doing that. It'll be interesting to see how that all emerges. But as far as LMDH cars are concerned, so you know, if you're new to uh, the weekend sports cars and sports car racing, this is effectively the cars that we see in the IMSA WeatherTech Sports Car Championships GTP class, the Cadillacs, the Acuras, the BMWs, the Porsches, and into next year, the addition of the Lamborghini and the Alpine, both of which are designed to that same uh, specification, that rule set. Rear-wheel rear drive only. Correct. Limited uh, power for the yep. hybrid deployment, a maximum of 67 horsepower. So mild hybridization, rear-wheel drive only hallmarks mandatory uh rules for lmdh which is what they're called in WEC gtp over here very different yeah. than the hypercar class which is allowed to run in gtp and imsa as well we've had no takers but in that class much more technical freedom at least compared uh to lmdh slash gtp where which vehicles won every single hypercar race this year? That would be all-wheel drive variants. Front wheel yeah, drive. indeed. So, yes. So I, I taking think care the, of tires I mean, better, not a big surprise, yeah. being achieved with the cars that have all-wheel drive instead of the ones that re- rely solely on the rear tires to do all the propulsion and assistance under braking and so on so this should not come as a surprise this graham admittedly is the one primary thing we discussed prior to this hey at least in the wc we're going to try and run these two different formulas together what could be a sticking point well uh, the one thing that we everybody knew would be a real problem to balance and create parity reared its head and did exactly what we expected in the cars that yeah. take better care of their tires um uh, indeed had an advantage over the ones where only half of the tires on the car uh, are powered and therefore uh receive the the brunt of the work to do and the brunt of the abuse so should be no surprise but also not trying to be captain negative for no reason but Tell me the the period where two-wheel drive versus four-wheel drive cars have ever been balanced to the point where you go, we have no idea who's going to win each race. It could be either. It it always favors one side. 
Well, you look at, let me, for instance, look at the, the era of World Rally that saw, for a brief period of time, front wheel, uh, sorry, rear wheel drive versus uh, the emerging force that was four wheel drive. And in certain conditions, rear wheel drive had an advantage. The one balancing point I'd make here, MP, is it's not outside of Le Mans, where we did see, oddly enough, the formula come together remarkably well. Outside of Le Mans, um, it's been more or less everybody, including the LMH cars, that have struggled to get onto terms with the stint long, long and race-long pace of the Toyotas. In my small brain, I'm accounting for that as being a sign of what performance you can extract to out of a more mature package with a better understanding of that package and that I believe we will see that that, that gap, that deficit shrink, we hope, quite rapidly. Um, quite what you do if it doesn't and you've got cars operating within the same performance window, because they do, um, where balance of performance is not doing enough to close that gap i'm not quite sure how you do that and retain the purity of competition uh, i'll again give you the the explanation that was given to me for the way that bop should operate what it effectively does is to define a maximum level of performance for that package the the key the engineering key the team working key is how close you can get to that maximum and if you're there within a percentage point uh, of that maximum um, and someone else is two percentage points off for whatever reason whether or not that's their understanding of the way in which they can extract the performance whether or not it's a deficit in terms of strategy or pit work or uh, or in terms of the driver squad that's where the differences come and i'm just not at home to an argument that says we've tweaked balance of performance whether or not it be track specific or for a data-led reason you know, by five kilos here or there, guys, that is not the reason why Toyota are winning these races, win them, you know, by a distance. Um, we are, Some races are seeing cars run them significantly closer. Uh, you know, Fuji with the, uh, the Porsche, for instance. The reality is what we should be seeing is these extraordinary teams, these extraordinary cars, unlocking more of the proportion of available performance as the teams understand the package more. That's what we should be seeing. That's where, by the way, at a race weekend, you start to see them doing that through the free practice sessions, the the pre-meeting testing, etc. That's what they're trying to do. This strategy, with that tyre, in these conditions, what are we seeing midway through the first or the second stint on those tyres? That's what we should be seeing. So... Putting it all down on the table and saying it's BOP, it's flawed, not remotely convinced of it yet. I do want a better explanation as to what the strategies are to deal with some of these challenges, but I'm perfectly happy to say these are clever people who signed up to a pretty straightforward rule set. They went in with their eyes open to make their decisions. They're now going to be arguing, for the most part, behind closed doors to uh, edge towards where they want to be, as well as working hard behind the scenes, whether or not that's in the simulator, in the engineering departments, on track in testing, on track during the race weekends, to close those gaps. That's what I want to see 
in the early weeks and months of the 2024 season, in particular in the FI World Endurance Championship, is these gaps coming down, not because the guys in white coats have adjusted the values by five kilos, but because Penske, Ferrari, Peugeot, Cadillac, you know, have actually gone out there and found something that's going to make a difference because that is motorsport. That's what it's supposed to be about. And I don't want people to have the comfort blanket of saying, let's make this easy. Just give us 10 kilos, 15 kilos, 30 kilos less. That's not what this is supposed to be about. The sums, again, you know, of the balance performance uh, quality uh, values against the performance window values should give you a remarkably close answer. The difference in the deficit will be about the team's understanding and development of their package. That's what you need to be looking to change, not throw the baby out the bathwater and start to mess with a rule set that has got us to this position in the first place that we can be talking about the numbers that we're talking about worldwide in this astonishing new top class. I hear you would also say that we're talking about Team Penske, Porsche yep. Factory. We're talking about Chip Ganassi Racing, and I realize that they're racing yep. prototypes for the first time in the WC, but that team by no means strangers to the WC, having run many years and had great success with the Ford GT program. So uh, when you have two types of something... And, and one type of those two types does all the winning, you would have to say that's either a remarkable coincidence or, hmm, if we have said we are going to allow two types of things and we, those who are in charge of setting regulations, create a level playing field where either type of those things can win and yep. only one of those types does all of the winning i would be very frustrated if i had mm -hmm. the type that wasn't winning the flip side to this if the wec had set the regulations had tuned bop so that lmdh won every single race we would be having the same conversation yep what in the world is going on why can't toyota or we know toyota's amazing we know ferrari's mm -hmm. amazing af yep. white so to me this isn't a us versus them or this is just strictly a if if porsche with their 911 gt3r won every gtd or lmgt3 race the other mm -hmm. manufacturers would be going wait a minute <laughs> you said build it to this regulation we have different types of cars engines in different places and lengths and widths we're all different but you told us if you bring it here you'll create a construct that allows all of us to have a equalist shot at winning we do know, of course, not every model at every single race is going to have identical chance of winning as the next things. Again, circuit type, vehicle type, right? There's some variables that would make a car more competitive here, less competitive there. Get it. Don't expect perfection. But 
I look at this in a very different light, brother, where I'm not pointing mm -hmm. fingers. I'm just saying clearly what was demonstrated in 2023 was unless you have a hypercar, you have no realistic expectation of claiming victory. That is on the series to address. Now, if a van wall is not winning, I'm not bothered because it's not supposed to win because the quality of the vehicle from the outset and the resources applied to it are nothing compared to the others. But among true, proper, well-funded factory programs, this should not be a conversation we're having where one type of prototype did all of the winning. So, uh, I don't, again, we knew this was going to be a problem because it's always a problem. It's been a problem long before this uh, split formula came into play in the WEC. But, yeah, this to me, there's a real serious amount of heat least my perspective on the wec going into this 2024 season if it is just another route of hypercars uh coming up too in I 2025 don't with aston martin right first hypercar is meant to be coming over and who knows if any other brands decide they want to come play yep. imsa imsa the heat will be on imsa just as much if and when we have something other than GTP cars. So again, this is not trying to pick on the WC. This is just one of those things that seemingly is almost never solvable in any construct. Although there is a significant difference, of course, with the Aston Martin in that it is not a four-wheel drive uh, power deployment car. Uh, so you know, it is a traditional rear-wheel drive only, no hybrid uh, Valkyrie. I, I don't disagree. And, I think my answer to a, a direct question from somebody uh, at Bahrain in a position of some influence here, when asked what my view was about this, if we were standing here in 12 months' time with the same season behind us, with the significant performance gap over a stint and over a, particularly over a race distance that Toyota has got, with another year of maturity of these packages, then I'd be very seriously worried. Um, I think it's the wrong message in year one of any program that we are going to that we're going to adjust the system so much that it brings back a team and a manufacturer that has got the most effective and efficient package on the grid back into contention with those that don't. I think you need to show them where the bar is. Whether or not you've done that uh, too much in one year, I think is a perfectly reasonable question. But you need to show them where the bar of performance and efficiency is, rather than uh, you know a false adjustment of performance to allow an underperforming team or car to get into it. You know, there's an interesting parallel here, MP, to do with the different way in which, in WEC, Penske operate their cars to Hertz Team Jota or to Proton, for instance. And at times we've seen the privateer approach working better than the Penske approach. Not on every occasion, but we have seen occasions on which it did. We saw it again in Bahrain, where the dominant uh, Porsche was not either of the factory cars, it was the Hertz Team Jota car. And, 
you could see, watching the way the rhythm of those stints was being run, that the Hertz Team Jota guys were working very hard indeed to understand what was going on uh, on what is a very tricky circuit in terms of tyre wear, what was going on in terms of where they could use the available performance and still have meaningful performance as you got deeper into the life of the tyre in that stint. So they're working hard to get there. It's going to be, you know, we've we've heard there might well be a tweak or two uh, to the system in the closed season. I sincerely hope that there's going to be effort going into helping us to understand the how and the why of why those changes are actually made and that we don't get to the stage where all of the narrative um, in hypercar is about balance of performance. Uh, it, it is the, the, the basis of the rule set that allows us to get to this stage. The minutiae of the discussion of that, frankly, is I think one of the most boring aspects of modern motorsport. You know, it's the hit with seven kilos, uh, smashed out of contention by 10 kilos. It just, come on. I mean, the reality here is there needs to be pressure for those teams to improve, and they need to be given room to improve. Whether or not that means that if uh, part of the process is that they are allowed to test more if they're out of that window, uh, whatever else it might be, but I think if you're allowing a team to get back into contention with an underperforming package, I'm a bit more worried about that. It's a straight answer. I don't, though, disagree with you that the optic and the reality of those optics is not a good one at the end of you know what's been a pretty long season. Last thing you want is a automotive manufacturer investing in and believing in a new motor racing venture and mm-hmm. then becoming disenfranchised agree. and wanting yes. to leave. And again, I'm not talking about some of the more boutique or, you know, uh, some of the ones where you go, okay, we love you and you're our underdog. I'm talking about the one saying, Oh boy, yes, we are investing quadrillions. And if we're still unable to win because there are folks deciding who has how much power, who has how much mm-hmm. weight, who has the, a variety of things that dictate our performance. This is where you break trust and lose things. I'm not saying that's happen, going to happen uh, right away. Just saying that you build a trend, you build a belief that you can't be successful with your chosen type of uh, f- the formulas you have to pick from uh, to compete in a multi-formula class. Um, yeah. Now, granted, and again, I'll just we'll close on this. Same thing happened in LMP2, brother. <laughs> hey, we're going to yep. put the tender out. There's going to be four official. Ch- okay, yep. we all got our Rekos. Yep. Okay, everybody's a Rekos. If you want to win, you got to migrate towards the one. So this is, you know, there's a bit of nature here where you go, hey, a f- an all-wheel drive formula? Pretty much always going to be preferable over two-wheel drive. And as you said, uh, there's some conditions, yep. some situations where the two-wheel drive w- would gain favor, but the majority of the events we will go to, you're yep. better off being all-wheel drive. So it's not remember, if they could solve well, it okay. easily, they would. No, no. I remember as well, we saw it as well in, so we tend to forget this, we saw it in LMP1 Hybrid, where there was open competition, an open rule book, 
And in the early days of that, we had very different solutions to the same rule book being brought by major manufacturers. Audi with a mechanical um, uh, hybrid unit. We had the superconductor uh, technology from Toyota. We had the battery-based technology with a Porsche 919, and they all migrated to the same thing as the technology matured, and they found out what did the sums better. Uh, the nature of motorsport at this level is that there are a lot of very clever people solving problems. Uh, you and I both saw, in pretty raw terms, how much of a rush it was for teams and manufacturers to get the GTP cars to the start line. What we saw at the Rolex 24 Hours this year, I think astonished us. I think both you and I expected that we would struggle to see any of those cars reaching the checkered flag untroubled. That's what we expected from what we'd seen. Boy, oh boy, did they surprise us. Um, we did see some problems for some cars, but it by no means dominated that race. It's about getting reliability and predictability into these packages and then unlocking the performance. And that's what I would expect to see uh, into the winter and through into the start of the season 2024. And yes, if tweaks are determined to be uh, needed to be made to help that process along, then let's do that. But let's not, let's not basically, uh, let's not have any paper walls here. If there is a problem with that pl uh, platform BOP, let's see an acknowledgement of it officially to say, yep, yeah, okay, now we've had a year, and now we've, we've spoken and understood to the manufacturers as they develop through their test program 23 to 24 that there is a problem. This is our solution to that problem. And then let's see where it takes us. Let's see where it takes us. It is a game, I've said it before, I keep saying it, we need a culture in this sport, in this world, of telling truth without consequence and having a measured response to those truths. What you absolutely don't want to see is that someone, when given that opportunity for what they regard as being a balancing uh, change, then go out and absolutely dominate. Uh, we've seen both sides of that coin and I'm sure there are rule makers that have been bruised by every single example, uh, whichever way you choose to play the game. I hope what we're going to see is those changes coming uh, by the time we get to Qatar and into the middle season before Le Mans. Le Mans, frankly, we saw fewer of these problems. We saw more or less everybody with a competitive package running convincingly well at the moment this year, which is where you'd expect more of these cars to have the maximum amount of performance of the package they've designed. If they're going to run at Le Mans, you'd expect a manufacturer to design a car that runs well at Le Mans. What they now need to understand is how to make these cars run that well on more of the tracks uh, more of the time. And yes, I do believe that the platform BOP needed a tweak that it didn't get I think we, we we got to that position too late in the season to see whether or not it would make a, a final difference. Okay, I need to leave in seven minutes uh, okay. for the dentist. I'll, so we've got. Can I wrap two, it up with a couple of questions at the end here? Or well, there's you two, two that I had. One for you, Norfolk, mm -hmm. Norfolk Alfisti uh, in the Great yep. Grand Prix. Reporter Joe Sayward also weighed yep. in here. Uh, asked, recently noted, you recently noted, or I think Joe did as well, that Alfa Romeo could Joe take over. Yep 
Peugeot's entry in 26. Any substance to this? Uh, so the answer is I've spoken to uh, some very good sources at Peugeot. They don't recognize that story. Um, the way in which the Peugeot program was approved, it is a Peugeot business case presented to the Stellantis board. That is a Peugeot car. It has the Peugeot IP, etc., etc. The interesting thing here is in 2026, that's quite a long way away. There's a new Peugeot on the way for 2024. Uh, that would still give that car... Uh, at least two more years in factory competition. Uh, by that stage, that will be the end of the fourth year in factory competition. Remember, that car joined the fray at the end of 2022. Um, so, you know what? Anything could happen at that point. Uh, do I think there's an immediate plan right here, right now? No. Do I think there's a possibility that there could be a plan moving forward? As I said at the, uh, earlier in the show, I do expect at some point, after two or three years of these factory programs, some of these factories will look at their program and think, let's go and try something else. If it happens to be the case that some part of that program, whether or not it's the basic platform or something else, happens to end up in the hands of another brand within the same group, I would see that as being a very good thing. But are we yet at the point where... Alfa Romeo are going to announce we're coming in 2026. The answer at the moment, I believe, is no. I'll take the last one here and could expand on this for sure, but we'll do a bit of a shorter answer this time at least. Our pal Ryan Caminiti, key member of the Prudade Listener Group, says, Hey, GG and MP, for some of the newer sports car fans, in what ways does a customer car effort differ from a factory works car example catering. what does uh, yes what does jdc miller motorsports not have access to with their porsche 963 that porsche penske motorsports does with its factory 963 lots of lots of stuff we get into ryan here but if we really mm. boiled this down it is money it is information and yep. it is staff so with the JDC team, for example, they have a race engineer, which be fairly confident saying Ricky Cameron has an assistant engineer, junior engineer, probably also looks after uh, the data and, and other aspects as well. But <clears throat> you do not have a army of engineers concentrating on every little area of the vehicle. It, it, the equivalent of having professors five or ten professors each giving up the areas of the car and coming together with a huge kind of brain collection of masterful knowledge after each session to parse that information come up with the best changes and reactions to go for the next session set up for the race for qualifying tuning throughout the event you're dealing with far fewer people so if you want to take it into a really simple equation think of a small mom and pop restaurant <laughs> where it's one or two cooks in uh in the back whipping up things as quickly as they can as best they can but it's not fine dining there's not 20 different sous chefs and all kinds of people plating and perfecting and making things that are going to be five star michelin grade materials so it's more of a smaller hands-on approach first of all money is almost in always smaller which means not only do you have fewer staff less testing less big knowledge gained on your own hey we're gonna go to the wind tunnel for 10 days or 100 days because we own one 
uh, we're going to do nothing but seven post shaker rig, huge computer simulation pro like a lot of smaller teams have access to some of these items or can pay for to rent some of these tools in a limited capacity ryan very different though than the big factories that tend to have their own and have them running at all times so since racing is information right you're gathering tons of information deciding what to use what not to use how to use it you end up seeing a smaller team being at a pretty significant deficit than the factory when it comes to knowledge not only of what's coming off of the car and how much they can process it after or during a session but just in the learning and mastering the vehicle between events, right, through all the off-track testing things that we mentioned. There can be a cool side, though, and Graham mentioned this a little bit earlier, talking about at some WC races, the Team Jota Hertz, Hertz Team Jota non-factory 963 team was sometimes running in a more capable manner than the factory. Uh, there can be situations where there is so much data and information that you can get lost. There's so many variables on the car you can modify. You modify this one suspension aspect, the rear of the car, and great, but that also affects three other aspects too. You've got to adjust those. It's a bit of a domino effect. Well, if you have the staff and the money and the everything to go through all of these things and try and find the perfect way to run the car. Great. You can be the fastest and maybe win the race. Rarely does that happen though. And so sometimes what you get to the brains of the smaller teams, the non-factory like a JDC is yeah, they didn't win a race last year, but they sure impressed a number of times, Graham. And it was often because they knew they didn't have the resources and the people to comb through all this information and try a million different variables to extract speed from the car. So they would often go somewhat basic and go, Hey, how does this feel? Good. Okay. <laughs> we'll kind of stay in this general area and work on this instead of explore these million other avenues and possibly get lost. And so, yeah, uh, rarely do the privateers beat the factories, but we do see times where the privateers are, are getting uh, more out of the car. And it's often because they don't have time or the people or the money to wander down these rabbit holes. And when we see the factories get lost, it's usually because they're way the heck down a rabbit hole because they have the ability to wander down them. Yep. Why don't you take us on a good one? I got to head out. The I will. There's one really quick uh, thing to bear in mind if the factories update these cars, the cars are homologated. They're going to update the customer cars as well. Uh, we're going to finish uh, by just referring to Jens Jensen. Well, who's the, who asks, what's the most hilariously named driver combination possible in sports cars? He says, Fred Port, Adam Martin Rich, Martin Short, Patrick Long. Ladies, gentlemen, I give you Joey Hand and Alex Job. And with that, we <laughs> crack on and we say, uh, with thanks to Cooper Tyres, the Justice Brothers, and torontomotorsports.com. Thanks again to all of you sending in the questions for Daniel Summerskill for putting this list together so very quickly. Thanks to our no doubt pained colleague across the, the pond on his way to the dentist in moments to Marshall Pruitt. I've been Graham Goodwin. He has been Marshall Pruitt. This has been the Weekend Sports Cars, part of the peerless, the matchless Marshall Pruitt podcast uh, collection. We will be back with you next week. <laughs>